Well, good morning. This morning we continue. We're a little over halfway through with our series where we're kind of answering objections, answering questions towards the Christian faith. And we normally do books of the Bible, consecutive exposition, just Romans 1 and then Romans 2 and then Romans 3 or Ruth 1 and then Ruth 1 in the second half, that sort of thing. We're taking a break this fall from that. Uh, We'll be jumping back into that probably at Advent, certainly in the spring. But this morning we're answering a question and it's an objection. It is why does Christianity have to be so bloody? Why did the sacrificial system have to be there? Why all those dead animals? Why did Jesus have to die? Couldn't God have just forgiven us? And I think people ask these questions in part because we don't like blood. It makes most of us sick, right? That's why it's the first thing cleaned up at accidents. It's clean up the blood. That's why some of the scariest scenes in horror movies are just blood going down a white sink or something like that. Yet there's also some weird fascinations within our day with all the zombie everything and the vampire everything, movies and novels and spinoffs, but most of us don't want to see it because blood tends to mean something bad has happened. And the Bible is bloody. It is. Right from the very beginning, we have Adam and Eve sinning. An animal must die and must be skinned, which is a bloody endeavor to provide clothing in order to cover their shame. And then we have the shedding of blood right after that with Cain and Abel. And then moving down the storyline, we have the Nile River turning to blood. And then we have the application of blood on the doorpost of the families in Israel at the time of the Exodus. And then you have the Old Testament sacrificial system and thousands, millions of animals slaughtered regularly. And then, of course, we have the crucifixion of the Son of God. So it is bloody. So why? Why is it so bloody? And to answer this question, I want us to look at three biblical truths this morning. Number one, the sinfulness of mankind. Number two, the holiness of God. And number three, the cross of Christ. So number one, the sinfulness of mankind. We have to know and I want us to feel the problem that necessitates blood. It's the problem of sin. Sadly, it's not talked about much, but sin is our fundamental problem. But it's hardly mentioned in pulpits across America. In fact, Lisa and I went just recently to a, a marriage event and it was on conflict. So we go and the first session is, is why we fight. And they had little blanks. There were two blanks at the top. And number one was just a blank. And so I went ahead and filled it in because I know the answer, sin. Second one was We fight because of, number two, men and women are, and I just went ahead and filled it in, sinners. That's why we fight, but turns out the answers were neither. Sin wasn't mentioned at all. It was perception, and then men and women are different. Well, those are true, but if that's all there was, it wouldn't be a cause of our fighting. The reason those things cause us to fight is sin. We're all sinners. And I submit that if we don't see sin, if we don't see that fundamental problem, we won't get to the solution that matters, the solution that works. It's like putting a Band-Aid on a... Severed leg. It's taken emergency for heart disease. But people steer away from talking about the fundamental problem of humanity. I think probably many reasons. Probably lack of courage among pastors. It doesn't grow churches numerically to talk about sin. It's not a popular message. H. Richard Niebuhr, writing in the 50s, said this about what many churches are preaching. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. 
The message of the Bible has been watered down. If you're a guest with us, let me just encourage you, friends, to find a place, find a church that will tell you the truth of God and not merely tickle your ears. It will rub us the wrong way at times. It will step on our toes, but we need that. Something we say here a lot is God knows best. God knows best. And sin is our fundamental issue. And so I want to rattle off several passages here. Don't try to turn with me. I just want you to hear these so that we can feel the weight of this theme, the sinfulness of mankind, right from the beginning. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Then you have the flood and then God repeats himself. He says the exact same thing in Genesis chapter 8. Moving forward, you have the Psalm, Psalm 51, 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 58, 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Prophet Isaiah in chapter 64, verse 6, says that we're all unclean in all of our righteous deeds. It doesn't say all of our unrighteous deeds. Apart from the grace of God, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That word is a nasty word. That is a word that is used in other places to to clean up the pus-filled wounds of leopards. Lepers. Not lepers, maybe leopards too. (laughs) Multi-use cloths here. It's also used to speak of used menstrual cloths, polluted garments. And the prophet Isaiah says, in our sin, our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Filthy rags. The best we have, apart from grace, is like a polluted garment. Jeremiah chapter 17. The heart's deceitful above all things and desperately sick. I wonder if you believe that here this morning. So much of our message is just go with your heart, know what your heart says. The Bible says your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, surely there's not a righteous man on earth and who does good and never sins. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our sin. Colossians 2 says the same thing. We followed the prince of the power of the air. We followed the course of the world. We followed our own fleshly desires. Romans 5 says we were enemies of God. We were the opposite of friends. We were enemies. Ephesians 4 says we were futile in our thinking, darkened in our understanding, alienated from God, ignorant, Heart, hard-hearted. Colossians 1 says we were alienated, says we were hostile. Romans 6 says we were slaves of sin. Welcome to Southside Baptist Church. I want us to turn over to the book of Romans. We're going to spend some time there. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, it's around page 120 in the second half. I want to look now at Romans 1, and a little bit later we're going to look at Romans 3. Look there, Romans chapter 1, verse 21. It speaks of who we were were outside of Christ. For although they knew God, they did not honor 
him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Skip down to verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is us. We could go on and on and on. I just did a quick search. Part of the message of the Bible is that mankind is sinful. We have blown it. We have missed the mark, but it actually goes worse than that. It's not only that we've missed the mark. We are rebels against our creator. We knew him and we wanted nothing to do with him, Romans 121 says. But the news gets worse. That's the first thing, the sinfulness of mankind. The second thing I want us to consider is the holiness of God. This is the other problem we see. Now, it's not a problem in of itself. The holiness of God is a beautiful attribute but not for us outside of Christ because when holiness meets sin, wrath is the consequence. And again, you're not gonna hear much about the wrath of God from most pulpits or most side tables or most flat screens or whatever it is. It's just a topic that is not mentioned. But it's all over the Bible. And God's wrath is not like that of the so-called gods of the Greek tradition that are capricious and arbitrary and bad-tempered and self-centered and conceited. No, but wrath is God's holy revulsion against sin. God is holy, as we just saying. And so when he encounters sin, the response is righteous wrath. Here's how J.I. Packer puts it. He says, it is righteous anger. It is the right reaction of moral perfection in the creator towards sin in the creature. God's wrath is his righteousness reacting against unrighteousness. And again, I just want to give you a deluge of passages here. I want to shower you with passages, again, because you're not going to hear them in Christian radio, and you're not going to hear them in best-selling Christian books, and you're not going to see them on coffee mugs at Family Christian. These aren't passages you hear unless you're reading the Word. Psalm 5.5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 7.11, the boastful shall not stand. Excuse me, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. This is the God of Scripture. Isaiah 13.9, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Prophet Isaiah chapter 13, verse 13, therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 23, behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished it. Ezekiel chapter 25, I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. They will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. 
Moving into the minor prophets, really the message of all of the minor prophets is turn from sin, repent, or the wrath of God is coming. Nahum chapter 1. Verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Nahum chapter 1 verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The prophet Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 15, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Zephaniah 118, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord and the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Zephaniah chapter 2, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before the Lord comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Habakkuk chapter 1 says that God is of purer eyes than to look at evil. And it's not just Old Testament. Sometimes you hear that. Well, that was the, the Old Testament God, as if there were two gods. That would be ancient heresy. There's not two gods. There's one God, and he's the same from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Let me just read a few passages. John the Baptist, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Luke chapter 3. Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Hebrews chapter 10, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. A few verses later, he says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 6, since indeed... God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishments of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Ephesians 5 lists all kinds of sins and then says, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. John 3, 36, Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Romans chapter 2, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Revelation 19, 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty. And so I hope you feel the weight. No one in here has warm butterflies, fuzzy feelings right now. We need to feel the weight of this. We need to feel the weight of the fact that we have sinned and word, thought, and deed. And we need to feel the weight of the fact that left to ourselves, God will judge us in wrath and fury. And so the question then is, how can this God that we see, how can he dwell with people like us? 
That is the question. Of course, in the Old Testament, the way that the relationship was sustained was through the sacrificial system. And it was extremely bloody. I'm not sure if you've ever seen, maybe in a movie, an animal sacrifice, but it is gross. Sin offerings and burnt offerings and peace offerings and guilt offerings, often including a sprinkling of blood all over the temple. There's blood everywhere. It had to smell terribly. Leviticus tells us this about the sacrifice. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Why is Christianity so bloody? The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you for the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Blood is the symbol for life. Blood makes atonement. At one minute, life given for life. And so how can a perfectly righteous God forgive unrighteous people? The answer is through blood. But not just any blood. The answer is the provision of a substitutionary sacrifice. And everyone knew that animals were insufficient. The Old Testament sacrificial system was just pointing forward to something greater. And so that's the bad news. We're going to turn to good news, but you can't really appreciate the good news until you really appreciate the bad news. Sinfulness of mankind, holiness of God, which results in wrath, but the good news is that's not the end of the story. Could be. Could have been it, but God in grace has given us the third point I want us to think of is the cross of Christ. If you've got your Bible open in Romans, flip over to Romans 3. Again, around page 120 in the Pew Bible. Let's read together Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, which is the heart of the letter to the Romans. Luther called this the chief point of the whole Bible. Let's look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe... For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. But even here, this is good news, but Paul had backed up. So to see the full context, look at Romans chapter 3 verse 9. What then, are we Jews any better? No, not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. And here he Quotes a catena of Psalms, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace. They have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, 
the righteousness of God is manifested. The good news makes no sense without the bad news. There's none who is righteous. God demands perfect righteousness. By the law, left up to ourselves, by our own standard, by our own performance, no one will be declared in the right. Every mouth is stopped. We can't attain the righteous standard God requires. But, but God in the gospel, God gives what he demands. He provides what is required. That's really the way he starts. It's really what the whole book of Romans is about. He started the book of Romans in chapter one and the thesis letter of Romans is in 1, 16 and 17 where he says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel, of this good news because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The good news is good news because in it, God's right standing that he requires is given to those who have faith in Jesus. So I want us to look at three gifts here in this passage. First, the gift of a right standing. Look at Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. But now, Martin Lloyd-Jones said there are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than these two right here. But now. The gift of a right standing is made known to us apart from the law. Again, it's not something we can attain. You can't earn this righteousness by your obedience. It comes apart from the law, but the law and the prophets, meaning the whole Old Testament, bear witness to it. The Old Testament is about this coming salvation that Jesus Christ would bring. And how do we receive this gift of a right standing that we all so desperately need? He says it twice here for emphasis. Did you notice it's through faith and it's for all who believe. It's not through law. It's not through obedience. It's through faith and it's for all who have faith, for all who believe. We do not work, but we trust God for this righteousness that he requires. I love the way Paul puts it in the next chapter. Flip over a page at Romans chapter 4. Verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies, that is to declare in the right, believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is why Christianity is so bloody. This is why blood was needed. And not just any blood, but the shed blood of the Son of God. We cannot earn our way. A sacrifice is needed and a sacrifice was given. The gift of a right standing, the gift of justification being declared in the right by faith in what Christ has done, not by works. Second thing to notice here is the gift of redemption. Give verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Really good verse to memorize. Again, there's our fundamental problem. Here's really the summary of Romans chapter 118 to 320. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Again, to be justified is to be declared in the right, to have our sins forgiven and to have the righteousness of Christ credited to our accounts, imputed to us. And it says we're justified by his grace as a gift. Again, not earned, not our merit, the merit of another, a righteousness that comes from outside, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is delivery through payment of a price, and the price was the blood of the Son of God. Bought from the slave market of sin. Redeemed from slavery like Israel of old. We've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Ephesians 1 7. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Colossians 1.20, God has made peace by the blood of his cross. So the gift of redemption, the third gift in this passage, where I want to spend most of our time that answers our question most clearly is the gift of propitiation. Look at verse 25. Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Maybe your translation says something else. If it says expiation, you ought to write propitiation besides it. It's more accurate. If it says sacrifice of atonement, I still think you ought to write propitiation right beside it because that's what the word means. It's a big word. We have to define it, but so is sacrifice of atonement. Got to define that as well. It's an important word. We see it a few times in scripture. We see it four times. We see it twice in Hebrews. We see it twice in 1 John. He is the propitiation of our sins, 1 John 2.2. Probably my favorite, 1 John 4, 9. And this is the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son to the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's a word we need to know. Propitiation simply means a sacrifice that absorbs the wrath of God. Propitiation is a sacrifice that absorbs the wrath of God. And Jesus on the cross was our propitiation. Jesus on the cross bore the penalty we deserved. He took the wrath that was on our head. We sing, and on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's propitiation. You and I deserved it. He bore it in our place. It's really what it means to be saved. In the church, a lot of times we talk about saved. He got saved. When were you saved? I was saved. But oftentimes we don't stop and ask, saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God, first and foremost. It's what he says here just in the next chapter. Look over at Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified... By his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So we have the gift of a sacrifice that averts the wrath of God. And how is it achieved according to Romans 3.25? Look again there. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Jesus shed his blood so that we don't have to. A perfect sacrifice was necessary. It's really what the whole book of Hebrews is about. Out of love, God himself took initiative to satisfy and appease his own wrath. 
That's how it's achieved, by his blood. How is it received? He's already said it a few times, but he says it again. Look at verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. By faith. We receive this sacrifice which brings salvation. We receive it through faith, by believing. Maybe you're here this morning, you don't know the Lord. And maybe because of the plethora, the sampling that I chose of God's word that shows that we are sinners, that is our fundamental problem, and the wrath of God is against us. Maybe you feel the weight of that and you want to have salvation from the wrath of God. He offers it freely to you even right now where you sit. You know how you receive it? Through faith. You trust in him. You trust in him for righteousness, not in yourself. To receive by faith. Why was this necessary? Why was propitiation necessary? In other words, why is Christianity so bloody? This is our question. Look again at verse 25. Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Notice this, according to this verse, for whom did Jesus die? Think if I asked anyone that, hey, why, who did Jesus die for? We're all quick to say me, for the, for the church, for the world. According to this verse, though, Jesus died for God. Look at it again, 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, forgiveness is a problem for God. I know we never think of it this way. But forgiveness is a problem for God if he's holy. How could he just forgive rebels and remain just and remain holy? God had to demonstrate to the world that he takes his own righteousness, his own righteous character so seriously that he crucified his own son. Because before this, he was liable to the objection, you are not just. How could you simply grade on a curve and remain righteous? How could you simply forgive sins and wipe it under the rug? No, 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 no. He would be unholy if he did that. He would not be just. And we get this even on the human level, right? Let's say there's someone guilty of murder totally guilty. And the judge says, ah, it's okay. You're free. Is that a just judge? No. God is not like that either. Here's how one New Testament scholar, Thomas Schreiner puts it. He says, Jesus, excuse me, God satisfied his wrath in sending his son as a substitute for sin in order to demonstrate that the passing over of former sins was not because he winked at sin, he could tolerate the sin of human beings only because he looked forward to the death of his son as an atonement for sin. The cross, first and foremost, is to uphold God's glory and to uphold God's righteous character. Look at verse 26 again. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is why blood was necessary. 
the character and glory and holiness and righteousness of God was at stake. With no cross, with no blood, he could not justify us and remain just. Here we see the inner logic of the cross. It is for us, yes and amen, but it's also for God. So that he might be just and yet the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here we see both the righteousness of God and the grace of God meet. In the cross, you have justice and mercy, kiss. Again, here's how Packer puts it. He says, redeeming love and retributive justice. Join hands, so to speak, at Calvary. The cross demonstrates his love. The cross demonstrates the fact that he does not wink at sin. And so why is Christianity so bloody? Well, because God is holy and we're sinful. And so sacrifice, the shedding of the blood of the blameless son of God was necessary to redeem sinful people like us and to uphold the character of God. There was a debt to be paid, a penalty to be borne. This is why the cross is the centerpiece of our faith. This is why blood is something we sing about in the church. It's the primary symbol of the faith. It's the heart of it all. 1 Peter 1.19, we've been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 John 1.7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Revelation 1.5, he's freed us from our sins by his blood. Revelation 5.9, by his blood, he redeemed people for God from every tribe, language, and people and nation. Here's how P.T. Forsyth put it. Without a holy God, there would be no problem of atonement. It is the holiness of God's love that necessitates the atoning cross. If you remove the blood, all that's left is judgment. Galatians 3 says that cursed is everyone who does not keep everything the law says. That's all of us. Praise God, the verses don't stop there. A couple of verses later in Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse. How? By becoming a curse for us in our place. Jesus is treated like I deserve to be treated. I'm treated like he deserved to be treated. Should have been my blood that was shed. It should have been your blood that was shed. We paid a, he paid a debt he did not owe. We owed a debt we could not pay. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hallelujah. What a Savior.